Hey, this is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, Killer Robots. A chorus of voices from the AI and robotics community call for a ban. Computer brain interfaces reveal music in the mind. In our second half hour, land defenders in Muskrat Falls, Labrador, oppose hydro dams. And a few thoughts from Canada's emeritus ecologist. Welcome to the Green Blue Show. I'm David Kattenberg. When God gave Noah the rainbow sign in the old gospel song, he warned that there'd be no more water, fire next time. As Earth's temperature rises, it seems both withering fire and cataclysmic floods are our lot. How else to explain this past summer's biblical deluge in Houston and withering wildfires up and down western Canada and the U.S.? According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, the incidence of wildfires has quadrupled since the mid-1980s, burning five times longer and consuming six times more land. Heat, drought, and early spring melt are to blame, experts say. Perversely, periodic bouts of intense rain promote forest growth, fueling fire intensity and dry summers that follow. Today's fires are more destructive and deadlier than ever before. 100,000 hectares of land have been consumed by wildfires now sweeping northern California. 20,000 residents have been forced to flee. 6,000 homes and businesses have been incinerated and 40 people killed. Last summer's fire in Fort McMurray in northern Alberta wreaked similar havoc, torching a major swath of Canada's tar sands capital and forcing 80,000 to run for their lives. This summer, 19 wildfires merged in the British Columbia interior. The conflagration, a half million hectares in size, was the largest in the province's history. Is this season's spate of hellish infernos, torrential rains, and mega-hurricanes a sign of worse to come? If so, U.S. and Canadian government authorities are hard of hearing. Canada's charismatic prime minister talks a good talk, about the perils of climate change and the need to abide by the Paris Accords, but ardently supports continued tar sands extraction and oil pipelines. In the States, a draft of the Environmental Protection Agency's new four-year plan has absolutely nothing to say about climate change. It's enough to make a climate change refugee weep and moan. For others, it's a call to action. This is the Green Blue Show. I'm David Kattenberg. I gave no the rainbow sign. No more water but fire next time. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't mourn. Bruce Springsteen, from his album We Shall Overcome, The Seeger Sessions, Oh Mary, Don't You Weep. If climate change inferno isn't scary enough, how about killer robots? This past summer, a hundred members of the artificial intelligence and robotics communities, including Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, 
published an open letter calling for a ban on autonomous weapon systems. 3,000 have signed the letter to date. AI researcher Ryan Garapi spoke with me from Waterloo, Ontario. In in the popular press, we hear about killer killer robots, which is very uh, very um, graphic and. Uh, and one immediately conjures up in one's mind pictures of things that we've seen in various films, Hollywood films. In your open letter, they are referred to as autonomous weapons. What is an, an autonomous weapon? Uh, and, and how is it different from things like drones or cruise missiles, which uh, go out there and seem to be kind of autonomous in their in their function? Yes, and that's that's one of the major points of differentiation. And as 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 close as we've been able to define it, the autonomous weapon system is a system which can select and engage targets without any sort of human intervention. Whereas something like a drone, for example, it, it may be remotely piloted, but there is still a person who either authorizes the use of a weapon or explicitly fires a weapon. That's that's the case with drones and with, with cruise missiles as well, though there is a significant delay between launching the cruise missile and the cruise missile's impact, that is a very, very deliberate a very, very deliberate choice that has many humans in the loop as that decision is being made. But what we're worried about is the development and deployment of systems which can make uh, which can be deployed into the battlefield, whether they're they're their ground robots, whether they're aerial robots or underwater robots, and just through some kind of some some method of pattern matching, simply decide that this person or group of people they see is someone who they should they should employ lethal force against, and also that the conditions that they're in, that the likelihood for collateral damage is either is either negligible or is proportion or the collateral harm which would be caused is proportional to the benefit which would be gained by by carrying out this directive. So what would the, what would these things look like? I guess uh, an associated question is whether or not anybody has developed prototypes for for such such armed systems. Like would they look like robots, like human beings walking along and firing guns, or would they be just vehicles flying through the air that would shoot at people. So that, that's one of the challenges as well, is, is determining what these vehicles look like. There's, there's, nothing that's, there's nothing visibly different between a system which is taking action purely on its own and a system which is communicating with a remote operator looking for authorization to fire. So it could be a small robot vehicle. It could be an existing drone. The obviously the the specter of humanoid robots stalking through streets and buildings is often brought up, but that's that's still very much a uh, a method an area of research right now. But to take an existing drone or existing loitering munition or an existing or an existing ground vehicle and remove the need for a human to confirm authorization for lethal force, that's that's all that's needed to make this an autonomous weapon. Are you aware, or any of the signatories to your open letter, aware of anyone who's actually developing a prototype for such a thing, be they a, a state actor or a non-state actor? I am 
I am not personally aware of of active research which is which is going on. However, this is the sort of research which is likely to be kept relatively secret, especially because many directives which do currently exist on a country by country basis currently guide against the development and use of this technology, such as I believe it's the US DOD Directive 3000.09. But what is that it's, directive? It's not a, uh, it's not a, that's not a guarantee that this work isn't being done. There are systems which are, which are out there which have been acknowledged to be able to be put in a autonomous mode. Um, but the level of, uh, the level of reliability or the level of use is, is up for debate. So, so there are people in the U.S. Department of Defense, for example, who are experimenting with, with prototypes. Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about that. I know they have a directive that says these should not be deployed, right. but that directive is not exactly a binding resolution by any means. What what would be the uh, here in your open letter? You say just as most chemists and biologists have no interest in building chemical or biological weapons, most AI researchers have no interest in building AI weapons. Uh, I guess it's another way of asking the same question: Who who does? If most AI researchers don't have an interest, who does? Well, I think that's that sort of question is very much. It's very much on the the individual person. I mean, there are arguments which can be made in favor of these of these weapons when individuals such as myself say that that it's that it's possible, and in fact, you would get a a more humane the combat would be made more humane when you had a combination of a robot with direct human monitoring and control. There there are things that, that there some of the responses are that if you have that sort of scenario, then the enemy can just jam the communications and possibly disable the systems. And it's, it's true that, that these systems may not be as, as robust to, to enemy interference as a, as a self-contained autonomous weapon system operating independently in the field. But on the other hand, it does raise the question of how we want war as a society to look. We know that there will be conflict, but what are the bounds on conflict that keep us that that keep us all civilized? We decided that we wanted the Geneva Conventions in place because there are limits on how we wanted to go to war. Um, we didn't say that war would be outlawed, but we, we put in place regulations, we put in place guidelines. The same thing for the prolif- proliferation of nuclear weapons, of chemical weapons, of biological weapons. We all know that these are these are Situate, or these are weapons which would allow us to inflict harm while protecting our own civilians. But we chose uh, we chose as a as a as as a as a set of countries to not do that. And I think we we face the same decision right now. And and the open letter talks about it being only a matter of time until uh, weapons of this sort appear on the black market in the hands of terrorists and dictators. Uh, non-state actors. How easy would it be to develop these things, and and what 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 are the prospects for actually preventing them from being developed by uh, unscrupulous non-state parties? Not not to suggest that state parties aren't out there that are unscrupulous, 
but how how easy would it be for uh, uh, somebody somebody who's really unscrupulous to develop such a thing? Well, I think if we're talking about that point, it's always easier to buy something than to develop something from scratch. Um, I think that's that's kind of fundamentally the point. It's it's possible that with the continued advances in artificial intelligence, with the continued advances in in robotics and control systems, that it is possible that as we go further and further into the future, that someone will be able to build one of these in a garage. Uh, arguably, you could build something if you had the right the right skills. You could build something rudimentary right now, but what we what we don't want is we don't want this sort of thing to be available broadly on the black market that you can just you can you can redirect the shipment or 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 you can pick up a set of these which have been left behind by a um, left behind in a base that that's the way that you can acquire these because we do know we do know for instance that non-state actors are starting to employ employ UAVs rigged with explosives, but they're not doing it on a very large scale because it's simply not easy to run an engineering operation when you're also when you're also not a part of a stable nation. Uh, you talk about, or this open letter talks about, autonomous weapons as as potentially representing a third revolution in warfare after gunpowder and, and nuclear arms. Um, can you talk about that a bit? I mean, arms of this sort would truly revolutionize the, the battlefield, wouldn't they? Yes. I mean, it, it really removes the human, it re- really removes the human element from combat completely. Um, it removes, it removes accountability. It removes responsibility from, from the, the need to evaluate a situation and assess the need to take lethal force. And it also significantly would 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 significantly speed up the tempo, the the tempo of combat. So you're no longer operating at human scales of reaction times. You're now starting to operate faster at machine levels of reaction times. And to that point, if if a machine makes a mistake, which which will happen, even though a human may be able to recognize that mistake, it may be too late. We have this thing called the, um, the technological imperative. I think it, I'm not sure who coined the term. It might have been coined at the start of the nuclear era. Um, people, perhaps Oppenheimer, who suggested that you know once you've got a technology, something's uh, on the drawing board, something is possible, and people have got the various pieces in place and realize the pieces can be put together to create this that in human society there's this imperative if you can create it, it, it it's almost it seems almost inevitable that it will be, will be created and we've seen nuclear weapons we've seen genetic engineering there, there certainly seem to be barriers some barriers have been put up to the development of certain kinds of technologies like you know cloning and things like that of human embryos and such there seems so far to the barrier seems to be in place but does it does it seem to you, Ryan Garropy, that what once we have the components in place and the technologies are feasible, that it is inevitable that things will be developed? I think there's a difference between things being developed and things being deployed at scale. 
we know that it's possible to with with our technology to set up a base on the moon but we haven't done it we know that it's possible to go to mars and we haven't done it these are things that we know are possible with current technology but we but will eventually yet, we will eventually <laughs> but i mean we we stopped i mean we were we were on our way to establishing a presence on the moon and the technology, the technology is, is here to do so, but we chose to prioritize other areas of spending our time. And I think that's, that's also a matter of, that's, that's a matter of economics, really. I mean, on my, I'm not, I'm not a, my primary responsibility is, is not to be a researcher. My primary responsibility is to run a business and it all comes down to what people are willing to spend money on. And right now, people are willing to spend a lot of money on warfare and they're spending money in specific areas. They're not spending. And also they're not spending money on as much diplomacy as they should be. They're not spending money on assisting in uh, assisting in many ways that we'll just say, I mean, the, the U S spent a, a great deal of money assisting company or assisting countries get started assisting countries with disaster recovery. And there have been recent um, reprioritizations in that area. And we're spending money as well. If, if we look at recent times, we're spending money on helping people recover from disasters. We're not spending nearly as much time on helping understand where and why these disasters might be happening. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's more the larger thing that we're, that we're looking at is that no one's actually saying that developing uh, developing autonomous weapon systems is impossible. What we are saying is that we shouldn't do it because there's a significant amount of negative negative impacts, significant negative impacts that are going to come along the way. Ryan Garropy, th thank you so much for speaking with me. No problem at all. Thank you. Sounds great. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Ryan Garropy is the founder of Clear Path Robotics in Waterloo, Ontario. Well, I'm a crazy mixed up kid, and I love to dance like this. Well, I love to rock and roll Because it satisfies my soul Well, I love to jump and shout And it really knocked me out Give me music with a beat It knocked me off my feet I don't care what you heard This is a pretty mixed up world Crazy mixed up world Crazy mixed up world Crazy mixed up world I'm in a pretty mixed up world Crazy mixed up world Little Walter Jacobs, 1958 Luther Tucker and Freddie Robinson on guitars George Hunter on drums And Willie Dixon on bass you're listening to The Green Blue Show. I'm David Kattenberg. 
We do live in interesting times. Roger Dumas at the Brain Science Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is very interested in how the brain processes music. I visited Roger in his little studio. We have learned that the brain tracks next note probability in melodies. We have learned that the brain tracks melodic contour. And also, um, the brain um, stores and integrates uh, idioms and melodies that can be retrieved. We have semi-successfully turned brain data into melodies heard by our subjects. I'm not quite sure what that means, turning brain data into music. Well, it's These are electrical signals that can obviously <laughs> be transduced into a, into a melody. That's right. Yes. So we extract the melody from the brain data and play it back. And as Martin Mull said, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Okay. We played um, eight seconds of a melody to a subject. Um, and this subject was in our magnetoencephalograph, uh, so also known as MEG, which measures the electromagnetic fluctuation across the surface of the cerebral cortex. And this eight seconds of data, which um, turns out to be over 8,000 samples stretched out over 248 sensors. So there's a lot of data just in this eight seconds of music. Um, we play that music, it sounds like this. And then we ran linear uh, regressions on the data for each sensor from this melodic contour, crunched the data down, did uh, moving averages per note duration, and came up with a melodic contour from the data that sounds like this. So if I play these together, you'll hear that we're not far off. So what you're saying is that when somebody listens to a passage of music and you record the electrical signal in the brain, you can take that electrical signal and play it back through a transducer and it actually plays plays the music. Yes. So you could take somebody, suppose somebody who's uh, who's heard something through a set of headphones and you haven't heard what they've heard. Yes. 
and you could just record the electrical signals and play it back, and you can actually reproduce what they heard. Yeah, well, we're on the track to be able to do that. You know, it, it, eventually, I mean, my dream is to make a brain computer interface for synthesizers or brain musical instrument digital interface um, so that people could actually hear melodies that they're auditioning internally. Uh, we're not there yet, but we have been able to extract melodic contour from brain data. So in other words, I could, in, in my mind, think about Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Yes. And uh, you'd have no idea what I was listening to in my brain, and, but you could, you could tell. Yes. Well, that's right. We could. We could definitely discriminate between different melodies using this method. Um, getting the notes right, of course, is the trick. And the resolution for, for the data is it's a little difficult to deal with at this point because we haven't quite figured out the, um, the formula that we need to translate data into musical notes. But we have the contour at this point, the gross contour of the, of the melody. And have you actually carried out that experiment, put somebody in a, a microencephalograph and said, play a tune in your head, and then said, oh, what you're, what you're listening to in your head is this? Well, we, we have done something quite a bit like that. We have played the, the passage that you just heard with notes missing. So in, the, in each iteration of the melody, we remove a different note. And in the end, theoretically, if we put all these spaces together, we should have a representation of the original melody in the brain data. So this is what you refer to as next note prediction? No, that's, that's different. That's next note probability. And um, that is uh, based on the idea that people who are familiar with the musical genre um, and everybody is, because all cultures have music. They have, they have two things in common. They have music and language, right? So uh, people who are familiar with the music of their culture carry around in their heads a corpus of details, information, data about music. Here in Minnesota and the United States and even in the Western world, we're familiar with the Western classical music model. Typically, 12 tones, it's chromatic. Most melodies are, uh, comprise seven notes in a scale. And uh, we are familiar with modes, major and minor. We're familiar with accidentals, you know, chromatic instances in a melody that don't fit the scale but nevertheless um, are understood and appreciated. And so carrying around that corpus, this huge database of regularities in music, enables us to appreciate novelty. When we hear a new piece, we can refer to this model in our heads, compare it, and um, appreciate the differences, or revisit old uh, thoughts about the music. And so next note probability is determined by the frequency of the occurrence of a note pair 
in a corpus of music, Western musical uh, tradition. Uh, we found this in a book called A Dictionary of Musical Themes. It's uh, 10,000 musical themes, melodies, and 600 pages. We scanned every one of those pages and did optical character recognition on it and determined all of the note pairs for every melody in there. There are hundreds of thousands of these. Then we counted up how often a particular note pair shows up. And you get, a, you get the frequency of occurrence and you divide that by the total number of uh, note pairs in the entire corpus and you end up with the probability of the occurrence of three blind mice. mice. Okay, so your brain automatically went to mice because you have this corpus in your head. You made a guess as to the probability of the next note and uh, you were correct. So we played um, Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring to 10 different subjects and then we tracked the uh, activity in their brains and correlated that with the probability, uh, actually the minus log of the probability, which turns out to be a positive number and which we call a perplexity index. And we found that, especially on the right side of the brain, you have um, excitation. The brain uh, responds to unexpected notes more than it does to expected notes. So if a, if a, if a note has a higher perplexity index, we see a jump in brain activity. So for example, if, if somebody were to be listening to Chinese music or something from Japan or something Arabic, they, they're not quite sure where to go when it comes to listening to, to a tune if they're not from that culture. Well, you might be surprised how, how quickly people adapt. This uh, experiment, um, the, the one you're suggesting, has been done uh, on Finnish yoiks, which are folk songs. Um, it's been done with Polynesians. Uh, people who are unfamiliar with one uh, musical genre adapt very quickly, and they learn the regularities because there's some commonalities. Uh, for example, octave equivalents. All musics have octave equivalents. If I sing la and I go la, people would generally say that's the same note, only it's an octave higher. So uh, uh, brains are plastic, um, and music cognition uh, is um, it's real. Roger Jumas is a research associate at the Brain Science Center at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Learn more about Roger and his work at www.greenplanetmonitor.net. This is Mose Allison, Lost My Mind. If you would be so kind to help me find my mind, I want to thank you in advance. Know this before you start My soul's been torn apart I lost my mind in a wild romance My future is my past This memory will last I'll live to love the days gone by 
days that come and go is like the one before. My mind's lost till the day I die. Words would fail me if I tried to describe her. Though I know she's not all she should have been. She was the devil with the face of an angel. She was sweet and cruel, cruel and sweet as homemade sin. If you would be so kind to help me find my man. I want to thank you in advance Know this before you start My soul's been torn apart I lost my mind in a wild romance Muskrat Falls is a 15-meter water chute on the lower Churchill River in eastern Labrador on Canada's northeastern coast, 25 kilometers upstream from Happy Valley Goose Bay. Here, the cash-strapped government of Newfoundland and Labrador hopes to finally turn a profit on the river's hydro potential. Hydroelectricity from the 1972 Churchill Falls Station on the river's upper reaches ended up getting sold to Quebec on embarrassingly disadvantageous terms, the Muskrat Falls and Gull Island facilities will exploit the remaining 35% of the river's kinetic energy, funneling it on high-voltage lines across the Gulf of St. Lawrence to Newfoundland. The economics of the enterprise don't impress critics at all. It's the 100-square-kilometer reservoir behind a dam built on quick clay that worry locals the most, and methyl mercury inevitably released when vegetation is flooded into waters flowing to Lake Melville. In this zone of freshwater and ocean mixing, fish and seals are abundant and methylmercury bioaccumulates. Local Inuit, Inu, and Métis land defenders have been trying for years to stop the development. There have been protests and blockades. Elders have been arrested. I spoke with Amy Norman. Apologies for the phone connection. Listen close. You've got your reservoir right behind the dam, and, and the reservoir, of course, is on flooded lands. So your concern is that there's going to be methylmercury produced. It's going to flow into Lake Melville, right? Yeah, and so when it's, it's produced, it flows into Lake Melville. But the way that the water is kind of stratified, because it's like fresh water sitting on top of salt water kind of thing, and it, it kind of mixes in a weird way. And, and so all of our... our you know, our plants, our animals, they're all getting the methylmercury kind of more than if it was just, like, washed out and dispersed in, like, one sort of even, dispersed evenly in the water. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, um, the, the smaller animals eat it, and then as, as it goes up the food chain, it bioaccumulates in fat. Now, this is where it's a huge concern um, for Inuit here because one of our most important sources of traditional foods is the seal. And, you know, pretty high up there and it's fatty. (laughs) And so the methylmercury greatly accumulates in the seal and then 
but not just steel, you know, it's going to affect our salmon, our waterfowl, you know, it's affecting all of our traditional foods in our food web, and that is one of the biggest concerns to me, but, you know, there are many. This project is kind of fought with a lot of issues, but certainly the methylmercury contamination is one of the huge ones. And there, there had been a call to... Uh to have the, the, the vegetation surrounding the reservoir cleared, the soil and the vegetation cleared, so that when the reservoir was full, the, there'd be less potential for methylmercury poisoning. Is the reservoir now uh, now filled? Um, yes. It's, so it's not at its full height. I think they, they say that the full height of the reservoir would be about 38 meters um, from sea level. I think that's how they're basing it. So 38 meters from sea level... It's currently hovering around 21, 22 meters. Um, so about this time last year, the Nunaki Group government, which is the Inuit self-government of Labrador, they, you know, really ramped up their campaign called Make Muskrat Right. And it got a lot of attention. This was surrounding the methylmercury issue and contamination, and they were really pushing for mitigation measures, like clearing the reservoir of vegetation before flooding. Um, you know, to, to downplay the effects of methylmercury. And so this campaign was happening about a year ago, and then you saw a lot of media attention because there was a lot of, you know, um, direct action, a lot of resistance to this that resulted in the occupation of the work camp. And at kind of the culmination of all of this, the provincial government sat down with um, the three indigenous leaders, of the, you know, the three different indigenous groups, and they came out with this, agreement. And they said, you know, we're going to clear the vegetation, we're going to, you know, mitigate so there's not as much methylmercury contamination. They had all these things they were going to do. They were going to set up this independent expert advisory committee that were going to guide this process of mitigating the methylmercury contamination. It sounded great. Um, this was about a year ago. What's happening now, you know, a full year later is the provincial government still hasn't stuck to their promises. They have not lowered the levels in the reservoir. They said they were going to do that in spring. They have not cleared the vegetation like they said they would. So about, you know, in the last few weeks, you've seen the president of the national government, Johannes Lamp, he's released a statement being like, look, we're so unhappy here. You broke your promises. You still haven't done anything. What happened to this agreement that we had in October? Um, so that's kind of where we stand now. All these broken promises, um, with nothing really being done in the like in the span of a full year, and and uh, have methylmercury levels started to rise? Have there been detectable rises in methylmercury uh, of water flowing into Lake Melville? So my understanding of methylmercury contamination is is that the first kind of three days are the really big important ones, which is why there was such like an urgent push last fall. Um, so the first. 72 hours after flooding is you get this initial burst of methylmercury. And, you know, they didn't lower the water, so presumably that burst has already happened. Now, I haven't, like, personally seen any data around this, but I do know that the data is being collected. I have heard some folks working on this. So, you know, hopefully we hear maybe some numbers soon. But, you know, as far as I understand it, the way methylmercury contamination works, there's already been this initial burst of methylmercury into our ecosystem because they did not follow their promises a year ago. 
So, you know, it's already happened. It's happening. It's continuing to happen. Whether we'll see the data, you know, in some official reports, I don't know. But, you know, that's, it's happening right now. So the methylmercury uh, contamination you've indicated, Amy, is, is one of several issues that are of concern to, 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 uh, to folks. Um, can you describe some of the other issues that are at stake here? Yeah, for sure. So one of the um, pressing issues for a lot of folks is the dam itself is built on what's called quick clay. So the banks of the Churchill River are very very unstable. You know, there's been recorded landslides up and down the banks of this river forever, including fairly recently, you know, just five kilometers upstream from where the dam is right now, there was a pretty big landslide. So you're having landslides, you're having, you know, the slopes of the banks just completely going because it's all quick clay. So what that kind of is, if you're not familiar with quick clay, it's it, it, basically is what it sounds like. It's this sand, it's this clay, but if it's agitated in kind of the right way, it just turns into liquid and it just like washes away. And that's what they're building a mega dam on. And it blows my mind. It's so scary. And they haven't really like taken this into account into, you know, the building of the dam because what they've actually done, this structure is they've utilized part of the riverbank, this natural feature called the North Spur, and it's kind of like land mass that kind of juts out into the, into the river a little bit, and it's all quick clay, and they're using that as like part of the walls of the reservoir. And that's so scary because, it, you know, it, it could wash away at any second. It's not, it's not safe. And, you know, traditional knowledge, indigenous knowledge tells us, you know, don't, mess with this river, don't mess with this riverbank because of the, the structure of it. And they've completely ignored it. They've built it on top of the quick clay anyway. And what I find even more concerning is the complete disregard for our public safety because Nelcor hasn't, Nelcor is the, the company that's building this, the Crown Corporation that's building the dam. They, um, they have no emergency, emergency plan uh, in place for any of the downstream populations, you have several communities downstream. The most closely is Happy Valley Goose Bay, where I am. There's 7,000 people. Um, and then kind of on the other side of the river is this small community called Mud Lake. And I'd like to come back to Mud Lake because that's, there's a whole other issue with the community of Mud Lake um, surrounding uh, flooding and mouthful and all of this. Um, but anyway, downstream, you know, you have four communities immediately impacted by this. And if the dam breaks, you know, we will be flooded. And it's, it's, it's not a far-fetched thing. I don't think it's, you know, people crying wolf because this is, you know, it's so unstable. And the, the riverbanks are so unstable, and they're not taking it seriously. It's like they don't take Mother Nature seriously. And so they have no emergency plans in place. I've seen elders cry. Like they are, there are people sleeping with life jackets under their beds because they are that afraid of, you know, just everything washing away because of this quick clay. It's, it's pretty scary. And it just shocks me that there's nothing more being done in terms of emergency preparedness for us. Can you tell me, Amy, what the, what the current situation is in terms of protests? I know that in the summer months, 
uh, protests reached a high gear. People were, have been arrested over the, the last couple of construction seasons. Um, where, where, do, where do popular protests stand, and, and what's the state of uh, coordination amongst the various communities who, who have concerns about this? Yeah, so, our, I mean, our resistance has been ongoing. It kind of, you might see, like, swells in it. So it really um, escalated a lot last fall. And um, and then our our indigenous leaders met with the provincial government, and it um, kind of all got quashed a bit when they came out with that agreement, which they haven't stuck with. So it, it kind of quieted down a little bit, but we've, you know, we've been kept going. We're doing a lot of things um, behind the scenes, like we're writing petitions and letters and all kinds of things like that on top of our direct actions. Um, you know, this summer we've seen, we've blockaded, you know, the main gates. We've restricted access for workers. We've tried we did some blockades at the um, the provincial government offices here so not all we we did that kind of thing we also tried doing some some other direct actions like we had um, information sheets and we would stop traffic and you know talk to every driver hand it some information and then send them on their way you know we're trying to come at this from all kinds of different angles um, so yeah our numbers are you know, maybe not as huge as this time last year. And I think what we're trying to do now is trying to, you know, get people back out. And Because the reality is, if you ask anyone in this province, like, no one wants this project to happen. It's so unpopular. Nobody agrees with it. So it's getting all the folks that disagree with this project to actually come out and, and you know, stand with us because we're, we're fighting for you know, our rights, our health, our safety, it's, it's for the next generation. And we just, you know, we're just trying to kind of get that momentum back now. That's where we kind of are. So, Amy, what would you like to see happen? What would, what would elders and, and land protectors like to see happen right now, if you could have your way? What needs to happen? What needs to be done uh, right now? We need to shut this project down. It needs to be stopped immediately. That's what we want to happen. What are the prospects for that happening? You you say everybody's against the project. Public opinion is overwhelmingly against the Muskrat Falls project. What are the prospects for this actually coming about? Where does your greatest hope lie in terms of uh, uh, change, uh, movement on this? I'm not sure. What the, if I'm looking realistically, you know, sometimes it's a big difference between what I want to happen, what might actually happen. I'm... I try to be optimistic. I do think we can shut it down. Um, there are a lot of folks, you know, they say, well, it's 80% complete. We've put so much money in so far. You know, I don't agree with that. I don't think we should keep throwing, what's the expression, keep throwing good money after bad. Like, none of this makes sense. Even if we are 80% complete, it still needs to be stopped. Our concerns still need to be addressed. Amy uh, Norman, I'd like to thank you very much for, for speaking with me. Uh, what, can, what can folks who are listening to this do? Is there anything that uh, Canadian listeners, folks from other, elsewhere across Canada uh, and around the world do to, to help you folks out? 
absolutely. We do have an online um, fundraising page that goes towards our legal fund. Uh, right now we have upwards of like 65 folks, uh, myself included, who are facing the court system either with civil or criminal charges, or some folks are, um, are facing both because of their role in this resistance. Uh, so we do have a fundraising page for our legal fund, um, and I can send you the link. It's fundraiser.com slash Labrador Land Protectors. Um, so you can donate to our legal fund, you know, share our message, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We post a lot. You know, we're just trying to get the word out there and trying to let people know exactly what we're doing and why we're doing this. I think it's really important. Amy Norman is a land defender in Happy Valley, Goose Bay, Newfoundland. This is Juke Boy Bonner, Blues River Rising. Weldon H. Bonner was his real name from Oakland, California. As a blue river rising, one can't see with their eyes. It's a river of tears from crying inside. defended Canada's freshwaters as passionately or with greater authority than Dr. David Schindler. Limnology, the study of freshwater ecosystems, has been Schindler's abiding passion for years. From 1969 to 1989, Schindler ran the Canadian federal government's experimental lakes area in northwestern Ontario, 
there, Schindler established that phosphorus triggers algal blooms. Phosphates would soon be removed from detergents. Professor Schindler and I sat down for a chat at the Banff Center in Banff, Alberta. These days, nothing worries Schindler more than climate change, but he sees the day when renewable energy replaces carbon. I think we're a couple hundred years from that. I can imagine being at the 20% level in 30 or 40 years if we really put our minds to it. And of course, uh, those numbers are already being pursued by countries like Denmark and Germany, and uh, they're on track. So it's partly a will problem. Uh, It's partly a subsidy problem, too. We, of course, put big subsidies into already developed industries. It's going to take some will to get out from under the thumb of those lobbyists, uh, especially if they're politicians who are getting the money, and get them transferred to where they can make some inroads into uh, things like uh, uh, geothermal, which I think has big potential for Alberta. And, of course, the more traditional renewables that people think about, solar and wind. Is hydro, is water hydro uh, renewable? Um, Not to the extent that politicians think, because most hydro generation also produces greenhouse gases. Those flooded basins uh, have vegetation in them that decays and emits both carbon dioxide and methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas. And the numbers vary a lot, but as a rule of thumb, for a set amount of power, uh, using hydro will require uh, uh, the emission of somewhere between 15 and over 100% of of CO2 if you just use coal. Fortunately, most of the Canadian facilities are at the low end of that, 15 or 20%, but they're they're not greenhouse gas-free. If there's a reservoir involved, it always involves an increase in mercury. It always involves blocked fish passage, as we've just heard in there. Uh, It always silts in old uh, fish spawning grounds and so on, so there have to be either new ones or or be able to do without. And uh, it's a big disruption to a group we've already disrupted enough, I think, and that's indigenous people. What's our biggest challenge? Right now? Yeah. I think for people to figure out what sort of human population they need on the landscape, what sort of uh, economy they're going to have, it has to be an economy that can't continue to expand. Right now we have this uh, idea of Economics, to be successful, has to always expand. Permanent growth. Yeah, and we have a finite planet. We're already using 1.5 times what it will yield, which is why we're losing species and increasing greenhouse gases and pollutants of all sorts. And it's astonishing that we, that human beings actually appropriate 40% of the, of, of the, of the net productivity of mm-hmm. the planet. That's right. Which, Which, if you want to maintain other species, is kind of a no-brainer. I think eventually, when we get it figured out, unless nature does it for us, we're going to end up with uh, perhaps one or two billion people on the planet. 
are living with about half the ecological footprint we have now, which if you consider that half of our current footprint is fossil fuel related, would not be too bad. Uh, and uh, just making do, we'll, we, we could have a good economy for that. Uh, we could have a happy population. We don't need to grow and grow and grow. Uh, we still have a fruit fly mentality, whether we like to admit it or not. And stability and, and long-term sustainability are something that is a foreign concept to humans yet. David Schindler is professor emeritus in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Alberta. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio. Subscribe to our podcast at greenplanetmonitor.net. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.